Hello, I'm Joe Glenton, and this is a special episode of the Warrior Nation podcast, where we'll be reflecting on the phenomenon of Armed Forces Day and what it means for British militarism. Joining me for the discussion is Dr. Ross McGarry, Senior Lecturer in Sociology, Social Policy and Criminology at the University of Liverpool, and a leading voice in the field of critical military studies. So welcome back to Warrior Nation. This is a special edition um, because Armed Forces Day is coming up and we've done articles and stuff on Armed Forces Day, but we wanted to get Ross in for some uh, deeper reflections on that. Something I noticed in the last day or two in the context of the the RMT strikes, um, there's been some very interesting things said and there was um, a Tory MP, I forget his name, and also a veterans group saying things and posting things to the effect that uh, one of the reasons the strikes were bad and they they have a range of arguments to make that case was that it was um, somehow disrespectful to the troops. It's a well-worn trope and it was stopping veterans getting to the um, Armed Forces Day events around the country. I think before we go into any questions about that, I, um, it's important to say that I personally know a, a gentleman from this town, Phil, who's um, on a picket in Brixton, who's a member of the RMP. Um, who left the army after 22 years as a sergeant. He was in the Fusiliers. So shout out to Phil. And just to add some nuance and complexity to that, some trade unionists understandably are are veterans. But I wonder, it's, I think it's easy, Ross, to go out. It's just kind of what Tories say. But I wonder if there's any, I wonder if you could reflect on maybe whether there's any, the deeper processes behind that, the kind of the sense that that thing, those people are kind of instrumentalised at times by by politicians of all colours, let's be fair. Um, and what you think's going on there? The population itself, or the veteran community and or population, however it's framed, is and has been for quite a while a political device and therefore divisive, right? So it doesn't really matter what type of public or political event is happening. It's oftentimes the case that the veteran community or veteran population can be just foreground in an argument and therefore the, the argument itself becomes off grounds and off limits for debate or critique. I think so. It's very seldom actually, I think, about the population itself and more about what that population has been constructed to represent in the public and political imagination. 100%. And that's, um, that's, uh, we'll come on to that question. There's actually a sense of that is kind of reflected in some of your points in your, um, in your essay, which is going to be the kind of backbone uh, or your paper, which is going to be the backbone of the questions here. It's titled Repurposing Liverpool's Waterfront as a Liminal Military Landscape. And it's a photographic essay, which is very interesting to me. Can you just give me an overview? What's your thinking behind it? And why did you choose a photographic essay? Yeah, I mean, the, the use of photographs in like sociological work more broadly, I think, allow us to get to the more complex, perhaps nuanced uh, social phenomena we're trying to talk about in ways in which are very difficult to imagine sometimes without being there or being in place and space. So... If we just sit the notion, the very broad notion of militarism and its many different interpretations as the backdrop to these kind of events, then saying something is militarised, militaristic, something has militarism attached to it, it's quite an abstract thing to achieve, I think, or certainly an abstract thing to imagine. So using photographs and being able to visualise what some of those things look like when they're in place, situated, when they're embodied, that was the thinking behind using a visual essay and using photographs. 
Hundred percent, and we'll we'll make sure that essay. Um, just a note to listeners: that paper is in the show notes, so you can go and read it. It's, it's excellent, um, and it really informed my thinking as well. Um, obviously, Ross, um, as we said, is also a veteran himself, which I think it, it, it's good because he doesn't shout about it. I don't, I don't like to lead with it either. <laughs> Sometimes you're forced to, but it's very interesting. I think I don't know how commonly you come across other academics with that background. Um, I imagine you find yourself one of the few. But across Ross's work and what he says, I've spoken to him on a previous occasion as well, it really adds a lot of interesting colour and nuance to his views. Now, I want to just come to, um, there's a term you use and I want to just unpack it, analytic autoethnography. Can you just unpack what that means for our listeners? Yeah, autoethnography is a method which sits in the broader practice of ethnographic fieldwork and ethnographic research. So long-standing traditions in sociology and, and the different social sciences, whereby a researcher will go and live with a certain community for extended periods of time, understand their working practices, languages, uh, ways of interacting, meaning-making, sense-making, and so on. And the researcher, as the ethnographer, is then there to make those observations for themselves, either through interviewing people. The main uh, method is observational methods, so note-taking. And also, you know, the visual can be a part of that as well in photography. So, so it sits in the broader uh, methodological practice of ethnography. Autoethnography, as part of that, allows the autobiography of the researcher to be folded in to the analysis rather than being sort of stepped away from it. And a further step to that, analytic autoethnography. And there are many different types of autoethnographies, by the way. But analytic autoethnography, for me, was just a useful device to allow me to take that former military experience and identity and, and situate it where I prefer it, which is in the background, informing as and when needed, and therefore allowing the observations and the theoretical ideas and concepts to do the leading in the analysis. So another um, idea that comes up in the essay a lot, and it's one of particular interest to me, is the idea of a liberal militarism. I think militarism is often mistakenly associated with the right, but I, I'm not sure when you served Ross, but I served in the period of um, Blair and Brown. And that, that those experiences and the conflicts of that time were backgrounded by, informed by ideas about a, a liberal militarism. Can you just talk to us about what that means to you? Yeah, I'm using the work of Victoria Basham and specifically one paper where that's addressed. Friend of the show. <laughs> so the term liberal militarism is a way of understanding the military as an unproblematic set of institutions, practices and so on, right? And rather than have that as a space which needs critiquing and is worthy of our critique, the like as Victoria puts it, the pursuit of many different types of securities and insecurities is, is a trade-off between having a military which is, in inverted commas, necess necessary and your freedom. So therefore the militarism which exists and therefore is accepted in society more broadly and therefore the military is not a space for critique or, or, or any f formal kind of critical analysis is the trade-off for that, very broadly speaking. Sure. There was, a, there was a sense of that, maybe in a different way. I mean, it, you can unpack it. I mean, you noted in your essay, Joe Anderson, who's the mayor at the time, said that there was no space for politics or words to that effect, and maybe misquoting slightly there, um, in the Armed Forces Day, which your essay was based on. What did you make of that? Could you, could you just tell us what you said in the essay and just unpack that a little bit for us? That'd be really helpful. Yeah, I think this is worth just situating in the broader context within which like, the military institution exists. I'm talking specifically in relation to the UK. So these spaces of Armed Forces Day, I think, are inherently political. 
by virtue of the fact that they've got military institutions, uh, personnel, vehicles, props, as I call them. So weapon systems that can't be fired but can be used and so on. They're all inheriting, they're all occupying civic space. So therefore, that space is not possible to be called not political because it has got one of our many social institutions, the military, at the very heart of it, and it's occupying civic space. So saying it's not a political event is a way of sort of fending off that this is a problematic space, I think, when, when they are inherently problematic spaces. And I think it's worth saying as well, if we just lean into the, the event of Armed Forces Day itself. Well, I think there's a problem here in thinking that it's an either-orism as well, just to complicate things a little more, right? So on the one hand, Armed Forces Day is a space which has been carved out through civic military policymaking from 2008 onwards, which is there to, inverted commas, celebrate and appreciate the armed forces. Okay, so that's broadly the context within which it's been brought into being and which it exists. And therefore, you know, if you go to these days, they are spaces which have been carved out specifically for that. So therefore, they can be legitimately enjoyed, if you like. You and I could go down to an Armed Forces Day national event, as I did in Liverpool in 2017, get an ice cream, walk across the waterfront and enjoy it for the way in which it's presenting itself to us, right? So that is one way of thinking about it. And that's legitimate in itself. However, I think they're also inherently problematic spaces that warrant our critical attention for what is there, what is represented, what is present, what is allowed to be shown to us and what isn't. So I think it's useful to sort of hold that event in our heads in two particular ways. 100%. Just to, to um, slight tangent, I, it's always jumped out to me since I started to understand it. Armed Forces Day is a relatively new thing. And prior to that, it was Veterans Day. What do you think... Um, inform that change because it seems to me to be quite a um, quite a big difference. One of them is almost like a summer remembrance, and it's it's much more about reflection. It's about people who've left the military. And Armed Forces Day seems to be much more, I think, as you said, a, a kind of celebration of the military. Um, where did that come from, and what the why did why did that change occur, and what are the implications of it? I don't know specifically why it changed its its name and focus, but if we just look at what Armed Forces Day is attending to achieve and also who it's meant to include. There's a, there's a very broad umbrella of those who are involved with the armed forces. So calling something Veterans Day would, I would imagine, just largely speak to the ex-military population or ex-military populations, whereas Armed Forces Day, as it's now been reconstituted, includes everything from cadets, reservists, those who have served, those who are serving and also their families as well. So I imagine it's to broaden out the scope of who can be included in that celebration. But again, I don't know for sure. 100%. Um, you discuss the idea of sinews, the sinews of that event, uh, and I think of military identity more broadly. What do you mean by that? It's, very, it's a very specific term. Yeah, when I was referring to that, I'm largely drawing on the work of human geographers. So the likes of Matthew Reck, for example. And Matthew Reck's work, just to give a little bit of context to the answer, has researched RAF air shows and he's attended RAF air shows in both ethnographic and autoethnographic capacities and the sinews operate in a number of different ways so I'm borrowing from Matthew Rex work here and that can range from a number of things some of those things are objects you'll get a pen with the RAF printed on it and you'll put it in your pocket and you might go home and put it on your desk and then you might very well get I don't know a flyer or a balloon, or a flag, or something like that, right? So those things can be material objects, and the, um, as Matthew Reck explains it, they become sinews between the institutional context of the military and you and your private life. 
So that's, that's one way of thinking about it. The other way of thinking about it is that, let's call it the materiality and the situatedness and perhaps the embodied nature of what the military feels and looks like. So just to explain that, if you, as I did at Armed Forces Day, if you go to one of the, the desks, there are a number of weapon systems on display. They're all chained up so you can't take them away with you. They're also not armed, you're not able to fire them, but you are able to pick them up and hold them. So as you and I would know, holding something like an SA-80 is an incredibly heavy, very cold, very cumbersome weapon that becomes, an, you know, it comes with an awful lot of responsibility. So I know how that feels. You would know how that feels. But let's say if just a member of the public is holding that for the first time, for example, then that might very well become one of those sinews also, which you can't quite take home with you, but you feel it and you remember it. And you might tell a family member or a friend, oh, I held a gun today and it kind of felt like this and so on. So those sinews come in, in, in quite nuanced forms, I think. Yeah, it's a really interesting way of thinking about it. You made a very interesting point, and this comes up a lot of forces, which about um, gender and diversity more broadly. Um, and obviously at Forces Watch, one of our main part of our remit is um, recruiting. Uh, and we've noticed, as you know in your paper, that some recent recruitment campaigns have shifted quite a lot, actually, backwards and forwards around different things, community, individuality, almost like influencer culture. There was one a few years ago which um, really talks about diversity, talks about diversity. A lot of the, um, the, uh, the people there were um, people of colour, um, I remember there was a young, uh, young black woman who was very much foregrounded in it as, as she was pushing chopping trolleys around and, and they were suggesting that this woman should join the military. Then you went down to the Armed Forces Day and you obviously assessed at some length in the essay and seemed to almost ask the question, to what degree is that actually played out at these events? To what degree is it sustained and followed through? And you're, broadly speaking, your conclusion was that it hadn't really, that what we still have at these events uh, is a kind of, is a male, heteronormative, Caucasian and imperial identity. Can you just talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, there's, I think there's two things to say about that. I mean, the f first thing to say, and I think this is quite important to, to recognise, Joe, is that these events are not experienced the same by everybody and they're not the same event all over the country. So my observations about this particular event are very specific to this event. So I wouldn't want to generalize it across all the different types of armed forces days, sure. past and present. So that, that's the first thing. The second thing is more, I think, an important question of what the military represents itself as and how it wants you to see it. And the, the actual reality of what that representation is like, the closer you get to the institution itself. So the representation of armed forces, of the armed forces on military recruitment advertising campaigns, which is what you're referring to on, on the one hand, is of a very diverse workforce. And of course, there have been a lot of shifts and changes, positive ones, just let's recognise that in the armed forces in terms of recruitment. But of course, the closer you get to the institutional context of the armed forces, it's perhaps possible that that's less and less successfully achieved. So Armed Forces Day was just one um, sim um, illustrative example of that larger problem. And that's, it's a topic that's come up on, uh, actually with Victoria Basham, when Victoria Basham um, came on, we did a live, um, a live event a few years ago that they're probably, that they have, and you have to acknowledge that. And we at Forces Watch are not here to kind of slam the military where there is, has been progress. We should absolutely um, recognise it. And she talked a lot. She, I think her work was around a period when um, there was an unusual level of access to the military, which you might not get today, about how there were, there are lots of people in the military who want to have a dignified workplace and they want diversity and so on and so on. I, I think the, the, the thing that's also worth acknowledging, and it, and it 
develops on from your last point, Joe, is that these are not simply large-scale recruitment events. And they're also not large-scale charitable events either. So, yeah, okay, on the one hand, whether it's implicit or it's explicit, Armed Forces Day is a space that does engage with many different types of publics and, you know, encourages us to engage with them and perhaps try to encourage people to think about joining the armed forces. It, it, it's had a recruitment crisis, as you well know, for a long time. That recruitment crisis is, is obviously likely to continue. So that's one way of kind of protecting itself and, and, trying, to, and trying to engage with people to, who might want to join. However, I, I, just, I also think it'd be quite problematic to think that they are just these divisive large-scale recruitment events. There's something much more nuanced going on with, with, with Armed Forces Day. So again, thinking about the either-orism, okay? It's not one thing or the other. They're not wholly good, they're not wholly bad. I'm more interested in that space that kind of sits in between. So if we do want to think about Armed Forces Day as having recruitment as part of its um, practices, then it's, it's one thing to say the Armed Forces Day tries to recruit young people into the military, but that doesn't really go anywhere that argument for me. What would be more interesting, and perhaps what that should encourage us uh, to think about, is if we can see how the military engages with the public, in public space, in civic space, and if these are recruitment practices, well, maybe that should make us think about what those practices look like. We should pay more attention to them. Who are they trying to target? What kind of questions, or what kind of questions are, are they allowing members of the public who approach these different desks to ask about the military and military life and what kind of therefore choices are allowed to be made prior to joining the military. I think that is a really interesting space which has been covered by um, some human geographers like Matthew Reck, for example, but other people as well. And of course, Forces Watch has done an awful lot of work in relation to military recruitment. But Armed Forces Days do have this nuance about them. They look quite banal, they look quite bland. They look, look quite unproblematic. And again, they can be these spaces which can just be enjoyed for what they are. But of course, the closer you get to them, having that either-orism in your head and just understanding that there's something else going on here which might be problematic, but it's not just wholly bad or wholly good. There's something kind of in the, in that middle ground, which I think is where my own analysis likes to pursue, you know. 100%. That's very interesting. There was another point. The idea of the degree of personal resonance it had for you, that's very interesting to me. Also as a veteran, going into those spaces... And seeing people very involved, very engaged. There's some very powerful stuff. Something that came out of your um, paper for me was the idea of the, de the degree of resonance it had with you personally, mm. being in that space. And that's something which chimes with me as someone who's been in the military, around the military for many, many years, has a deep interest in the military and how it functions and relates to society. And uh, there are all these people there who are deeply engaged. In fact, some people who, who are never in the military and are, are deeply engaged and um, uh, animated by this thing yet. As a veteran, sometimes um, you're in that kind of in-between place. You're interested in it, maybe as a critic, but you also feel slightly disengaged from it. Could you just talk to us about that that sense which came across in your in your paper? Yeah. The first thing I'd note about that, Joe, is that the veteran is just not a word I identify with at all. It's got no connection with me, emotional or otherwise. And I mean, I guess that's by virtue of, of a few things. The first being that the time I was in the armed forces was a relatively very short period of time over the course of my life to date. I've been an academic significantly longer than I was in, in the armed forces. So it's something which I've studied for a long time now, the armed forces, and the more engaged and closer I've got to literatures and the further away I've got 
got from that particular time and space. Well, I just don't see a reason why that experience would keep following me around in quite a substantive way. That's not to say that other people couldn't or shouldn't do that. I've mm-hmm. got absolutely no problem with people calling themselves that. That, that. That is a personal choice. And if you identify with it, that's absolutely fine with me. But for me personally, I, I just don't recognize that word as being connected with me in any way. So that, that's the first thing to note. Mm-hmm. I guess if we carry that into Armed Forces Day, well, of course, I've, I recognize that I served in the Armed Forces and therefore there is something in relation to the analytic autoethnographic observations that I might and did make at Armed Forces Day that, that are going to be informed by that. You know, so the space is still open for that to be informing the work if it is ever necessary. But the f- first and foremost thing is method and theory in relation to that particular social phenomenon we're studying. So when I'm walking around Armed Forces Day in 2017, for example, there's a number of different things uh, which I was looking for and then which occurred to me. So the things which I, w- I was looking for originally was about how the military interacts with the public on its own terms. Maybe we could come back to that point, right? how the public is allowed to engage with these very dangerous military technologies, you know, sit in tanks, hold an SA-80, put on a, a, on a flak jacket and so on. All those things are, are quite dangerous, problematic military objects and props. So I was interested in how the public did that and how the military did that with the public first and foremost. However, after I'd done the field work and when I was reflecting on, on the actual data itself, something else came um, to the foreground, which was that these spaces, for me anyway, not for, for anybody else, uh, became spaces which are called liminal spaces. Mm-hmm. So the space opened up as this in-between space that was informed by my former service, but not because I was trying to do that. Mm-hmm. It's just by virtue of being around those different things, those different objects and so on, that it became, it became to the foreground. So I'll give you an example of that. So liminal spaces, you probably understand it better by the phrase betwixt and between, Mm -hmm. something which is in a period of transition from one thing to the other. And the midpoint of that transition, and it's all about transition, is the liminal space. That's what we're talking about, right? So it opens up in a few ways for me. And one of the first ways it opened up, and this is how it connects with um, an ex-military experience, but not something which I'm trying to foreground, is about what's called uh, portals in relation to liminal work. So... The way in which I've written about this in other spaces is, again, referring back to the SA-80. So we approach a desk, and there's several different weapon systems on a desk, all, all, all chained to them. And you're allowed to touch them and pick them up and so on. Now, another member of the public with no military experience might, again, as I said earlier, pick them up and say, oh, that's heavy, it's a bit unusual, and so on. Uh, Realise how difficult it is to arm and, and, and so on. But when I did that, I even though I'd been well over a decade out of handling that kind of weapon. I realized that I could pick it up in the same way. I could arm it in the same way. I knew my way around it without even looking at it the same way. So there was something about that particular material object, that weapon. Could have been a weapon, it could have been anything. It wouldn't mm-hmm. really matter, but it was just in this example, uh, an SA-80, a weapon. Then that, for me, brought to the foreground the ex-military experience and opened up that liminal space that wouldn't be there for somebody else, perhaps. And therefore, I rather than thinking of that object as something which was to be fetishized perhaps and fun and to be talked about in, in, you know, in quite positive ways. I remember, I can't speak for you, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure this yeah, is I perhaps agree. the case. Yeah, th- th- these are objects which are highly dangerous. They mm. come with a, an awful lot of responsibility and maintenance. They're cumbersome and th- they're not objects of fun. Far from it. So that former military experience, that's how it's, been al- I've allowed it to inform the work as and when it 
became foregrounded, but it's not something I would ever foreground, Joe. Um, again, I, I would always prioritise um, using, again, methods and theory for the so whatever social phenomena it is that, that I'm looking at. It just so happens that I've served in the military a long time ago. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, something broadly related came up. Um, we spoke to the guys at Forensic Architecture about how they reconstruct um, war crime scenes and stuff like that. They, they try and reconstruct and they talked about how an object, how an object, I guess they're talking about the same thing, like an object can be a portal to access something. It could mm. be a cup, not even weapons, you know, a cup or a, it could be a table or a, uh, the position of a table, completely inanimate objects. So it's almost like there's a little bit of, um, a little bit of crossover there. Yeah, very interesting, very interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's, 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 like I said, there's other ways of thinking about these particular spaces. Mm -hmm. So as I said a little earlier, thinking of them as wholesale recruitment events, well, that's pretty much a zero-sum argument. Thinking of them as wholly good and wholly bad, well, it doesn't really get us very far. But as I said a little earlier as well, the closer you get to the institutional context of the armed forces, the more you realise that there's other things going on which perhaps transcend the representation that's been put in front of you. So, for example, at Armed Forces Day, in Liverpool, which is the national event in, in Liverpool in 2017. This year, it, it's in Scarborough. There were a range of different stalls across three different what was called military villages, right? So Army, Navy and Air Force, with the Royal Marines folded into the, to, to, to the Navy's village. Lots of different activities on. But in between those villages, right across the waterfront, there were also other stalls, right? So there were stalls there, for example, Help for Heroes had a stall. Okay, all to the good. You know, it's a charitable organisation. It's got every right to be there. Same as the Royal British Legion. And there were other stalls in addition to that, uh, such as the Nuclear Test Veterans Association, if I have that framed correctly. I think it's Alcohol Anonymous for uh, veteran populations as well. Mm -hmm. Now, if you just take those very few examples as also being stalls at that particular entertaining event, well, what do they look like and what do they stand for? I've called this disembodied harms. However, these are the less popular stores at these events, but the stores which probably tell you more about the institutional, potentially dangerous institutional context of the military than the other stores which are allowing you to hold weapons and sit in tanks. Help for Heroes, as we well know, is there to help um, injured personnel and injured ex-military personnel um, through charitable donations. And that, again, legitimate as it is, that's absolutely fine. You know, Royal British Legion does the, does the same as well. You know, ex-military personnel who are in need have, have gone to the British Legion for a long, long time, legitimate as it is. But these institutions speak of different types of harms, right? Different types of military harms in one form or another. Now, I just found it really fascinating that the most popular stalls at that particular event I was at were not those stalls. They were quite few and far between. I approached them, I was never in a queue for them, and I could just get flies and so on. Um, so, you know, that middle complicated space that Armed Forces occupies, it's probably at those events. It's just whether you're looking for it and whether it's been represented in the same way as a tank that you can climb in, an aircraft that you can climb in and have a look at the cockpit, a weapon that you can pick up. I think that problematic and complicated space exists at them. But are we encouraged to see them in that particular way? Just to draw on the work of Victoria Basham again here, mm -hmm. what Victoria has, which she's written about many things, but but um, in the book, um, is it War Identity in the Liberal State. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the really interesting many observations she's made there is about the the, the military will re-represent itself in its own image. So you, I just think when you attend Armed Forces Days or other, other events whereby you have military presence and so on, then I think it's maybe really important to be conscious of that. 
So what you are seeing is perhaps not the experience that you and I might have had or recognize as that day-to-day mundane experience of, of serving in the military. So the representation of the military comes in different forms. You said earlier about recruitment advertising campaigns. The representation of that is very specific, very framed, um, and it's meant to demonstrate and portray a very particular type of life in the military. I dare say Armed Forces Day is doing something similar. So I'll give you just another example of that in relation to the notion of liminality. So another point uh, in relation to liminality is the notion of thresholds. So crossing a threshold, a liminal threshold uh, can be said to be a door. You're walking from one space to the next. And that space is the, that doorway is the space of transition, right? Because let's say you walk into somebody's house, you don't own that house, you don't live in that house. So you walk into a different set of practices that aren't yours and different conventions that aren't yours that you might not be familiar with. So if we just take Armed Forces Day in Liverpool as the example of where thresholds also exist that allow us allow the military to represent itself on its own terms and in its own image to you and I and other members of the public, then the, the, the way in which Armed Forces Day was set up, as I've said, was across several different military villages, but there was also a warship on the Mersey as well, which you could go on. Now, as you walk, as I walk around Armed Forces Day, again, you're allowed to hold weapons and so on, all those different things, very free-flowing, not much restricted access to anywhere, apart from where people were eating. That, that, was, that was pretty much it, really. But as you queued to get on to the warship, then some that threshold was crossed if you recognise what was going on. Mm-hmm. So at the point at which I approached the front of the, of, of the queue to get on the warship, there was a marquee with members of the Royal Navy sat behind it, all very pleasant and so on, and also a sandwich board, which you and I would recognise with a bikini alert state on. Now that's changed now, so that's the security state of, of at any given moment in the UK, any 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 military military base. And the name of that's now changed to, to I think, the alert state. So first of all, that's one of the first indicators that you're entering, in my experience, in my in my opinion, you're entering a military realm, which was not contiguous with the space you've just been walking around quite freely. So you cross that threshold and then have your bag searched, which is all fine. It was very friendly and so on. And then when you walk up the ramp onto the warship, the first person that I saw was um, a, a sailor with an armed SA-80. So that's the sentry, right? You and I would recognise yeah. that as the sentry. So that was not someone who was necessarily talking to you and having fun and having a laugh. There was a very different feel going on as you walked up into that particular military space and that military realm. Then as you walked around uh, the warship, you were not allowed to go anywhere except the perimeter. It was not free-flowing. There was a little space opened up at the back of it, which had some like crockery on display and some weapon systems and so on to show you what life on a ship might be like. But other than that, it was an entirely restricted space which dictated where you could go and where you couldn't. And there was also a weapon system on the front of the ship, which had a laminated, quite a redundant laminated sign, which said, do not touch. So this was not a space for you to freely walk around at all. So the military clearly, in my view, had represented itself in a very specific way on land, on the waterfront, in civic space. But the second you cross that threshold, even though it has been represented and presented as contiguous space, a space continuous with the one you've just been in, it was quite different if you were kind of sensitive and knew what you were looking for. The bikini alert state, the bag search, the sentry, the very restricted way of getting around that, that warship and then, and then off again. So how the military represents itself and re-represents itself in its own image, I think, is really important to, to recognise at these events. Personally. 100%. Fantastic. Thank you.
This has been a special edition of the Warrior Nation podcast. We'd like to thank Ross McGarry for his great insights and Jacob Rogan-Smith for his audio wizardry. The episode was produced and edited by Forces Watch and Liverpool Podcast Studios. To keep up to date with future episodes, please follow us on Spotify or your usual podcast app. And don't forget to give us a rating if you like what we're doing. I've been Joe Glenton and thanks for listening.